look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I talk to a lot of people around the sports world, particularly in football, but not exclusively. But it's the football time of year, so football, we're going to talk. This week, I'm going to give you my memories, my 10 best things that I saw traveling around the United States, going to see 22 teams over 36 days in training camps around the United States. So we're going to do the podcast a little bit differently this week. I'm going to do two segments myself because I thought of what I would want to do this week, and I just thought, I've done so much on this training camp trip. been home for a couple of days now. But I've done so much on this training camp trip. I've seen so much. I've learned so much. And an awful lot of that I haven't written in my Football Morning in America column at NBCSports.com. I've just got it in the old cranium. So I just thought, here's the way we're going to do this podcast. It's going to be different than anyone I've ever done before. I'm going to do two segments, maybe 12 minutes apiece. Uh, and in the middle of that, sandwiched by my two segments, is going to be a segment I'm going to do with Joe Horrigan the Pro Football Hall of Fame executive director and archivist, and in my opinion, uh, after the death of Steve Sable, the real keeper of the flame in professional football, you just simply don't know him. So we had a meeting uh, last week at the Pro Football Hall of Fame that I'll tell you about, and uh, then I'm going to have a conversation with Joe Horgan. But sandwiching that will be some thoughts. First, I'll have a section about quarterback thoughts as I went around training camps, and then I will have a section later in the podcast all about all other thoughts, uh, you know, five other specific thoughts I had going around from camp to camp around the United States. So we're going to start off first with a few of my thoughts about quarterbacks. And, you know, I'm going to start in Baltimore. That was the first stop on the training camp trip, Owings Mills, Maryland, where obviously Joe Flacco, who won the Super Bowl five years ago for the, uh, for the Baltimore Colts and got handsomely rewarded uh, $20 million a year contract, and he just has not played well the last two or three years, last two years because of injury. But obviously the Baltimore Ravens drafted a quarterback in Lamar Jackson, and in the first round, and they aim at some point to give the reins of this team to Lamar Jackson. And I found Joe Flacco when I went uh, to Ravens camp. He's the same old Joe, kind of laconic, uh, and uh, not really seemingly upset by much. But somebody who's been around the Ravens for a long time says Joe wants to stick it up their rear end. You know, Joe wants to show the Ravens that 
there was no need for you to draft a quarterback, and I'm going to show you why. The day I saw him, he threw six balls over 40 yards for completions. And I said to myself, my gosh, this looks like the Flacco who went and uh, beat Denver in the wild card game, I think 2012, uh, throwing the ball all over the place and outdueling Peyton Manning. So, look, I don't know what's going to happen in Baltimore. I can't swear that Flacco's going to have a great year. But all I know is I think he is supremely motivated by the Ravens drafting a quarterback. He's healthy for the first time after two training camps being hurt. And I think that Joe Flacco has got a very good chance to have a redeeming year quarterbacking the Baltimore Ravens. Now, let's go to Carson Wentz and Philadelphia. Uh, the third stop on my trip was in Philadelphia to see the first day that Carson Wentz had pads on since the day in December 2017 when he uh, hurt his knee, suffered a season-ending knee injury against the Rams. Uh, and and that was on December 9, I think, 2017. So here we were, you know, basically eight and a half months later, and this was the first time he was going to put pads on and play at full speed with pads on since the day he got hurt. And I'm just telling you, when I left the field that day, he looked fantastic. He came out of the locker room uh, at the Eagles Novacare Complex in South Philly, right across the street from Citizens Bank Park. And he came out running out of the, uh, out of the locker room. And he came out onto the field and immediately just started running around and and even this was before uh all the warm-ups they did i mean certainly he does a lot of stuff pre uh pre-warm-ups uh, because of his knee injury but you know he came out and he was on fire from the start of practice it was about maybe 80 82 degrees that day it doesn't sound hot but this was an unforgiving sun that day and very very humid in philly and I just remember thinking it was about two hours and 50 minutes of practice, and Carson Wentz never stopped running the whole time. I did not see him limp once. And I walked away that day thinking, Carson Wentz is playing opening day. Now, let me fast forward to the Eagles-Browns preseason game in week three of the preseason. I was there. And... Uh, I found the Eagles to be a bit more of a tense team that night. And the reason is, in part, they have not played well on offense. Their first unit offense has been on the field with Nick Foles playing quarterback for 14 series this preseason, and they've got zero touchdowns. Foles hasn't been awful, but he has not been really good either, uh, and his production's been terrible. So I think the Eagles are really concerned about this. And this is the first time I saw Doug Peterson get a little bit tense with me. Uh, I've known him for a long time. He's a very easygoing guy. Um, and he was a little bit tense afterwards when I asked him, well, I mean, I watched Carson Wentz work out before the game, and boy, did he look good running around sprint, uh, you know, sprint, uh, sprinting to his right, sprinting to his left, throwing the ball on a line, just looking really good. And and Peterson had this long pause, six or eight seconds, and uh, basically said, you'll have to come to the game. 
uh, I think this is wearing on Doug Peterson. I know it's wearing on Carson Wentz, who believes that he's in shape to play football. I do think that Nick Foles will play. Uh, my gut feeling, I don't have any inside information, but my gut feeling is Foles is probably going to play, let's say, the first two games of the season. I think there would be a nice uh, way to get uh, Carson Wentz into the lineup week three at home against the Indianapolis Colts. The Colts do not have a good defense. And uh, to me, I think that seems to make the most sense uh, for when to play Carson Wentz. Now, uh, let's go to Andrew Luck. I spent some time with him uh, in Westfield, Indiana, the first year of a new training camp site for the Colts. And... You know, I've I've had a good relationship with Luck since he's come into the league uh, for six years. And it was interesting. Last year, he just disappeared off the face of the earth. Even when he was not playing, he was not around to speak to. Uh, they didn't make him available. And I found out, this is Luck's admittance to me, that he just wasn't a really good guy last year. He was mopey. He wasn't letting people help him. Uh, and he told me flat out that he believed there was a chance he would never play football again and certainly not be able to play uh, at the level uh, that you know he thought he would when he graduated from Stanford. I, I actually told Andrew Lug, not that, not that this helped him at all, but I, I told him about right here on this podcast, the week after the Super Bowl, after the Patriots and uh, and Falcons played, do you remember the story that that Tom Brady told when you know Brady had this this uh, uh, you know this this pain early in his career, and he was just in pain almost all the time. He said when he was twenty five or twenty six years old, I forget uh, you know what he said, but when he was twenty five, he had pain all the time. And he's thinking, how in the world am I going to get through my career with pain like this all the time? And then he found new ways to to stretch, to work out, uh, to get ready to play football. And it turns out that here he is at 41, and he doesn't have nearly the pain at 41 than he had at 25 at 26, or as he had. And and I told Luck about that, and I think he he felt he felt like you know that's something that might apply to him. I. I think if he were ever in a room with Tom Brady and could have a conversation with him, I really think he'd ask him about that. Um, but I get the feeling that Luck is going to be in good condition. Uh, Frank Reich tells me, the coach of the Colts, that he believes that he's going to be able to play 16 games. And so I think Andrew Luck is going to be a, a fascinating figure to watch, but He's going to enter the season week one against the Cincinnati Bengals without any health restrictions whatsoever on a surgically repaired right shoulder. So let's go to uh, Green Bay, where um, this is sort of a combo platter thought. Um, in uh, I'd say around July 10, I forget exactly when it was, but uh, NBC, where I now work, has a golf tournament in Tahoe, celebrity golf tournament with a lot of uh, athletes in it, and, and Rogers was going to be there. So I went there, spent a little time with him one, one day after a practice round, and it was very interesting. He, uh, I followed him around for the last six holes of his practice round, and there was, I don't know, there's 
maybe a hundred people on every hole just watching the 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 players. There's Steph Curry, Charles Barkley. I mean, there's a lot of famous people there. So and and Aaron Rodgers took a picture with everybody who asked. He signed everything. He said hello. He he uh, you know he shook hands. He he just was he was incredibly friendly. And I asked him afterwards about it. I said, man, you it's hard to be you, but you really responded well. And one of the things we talked about that day was how he really felt like he got some good life advice uh, from the Dalai Lama. Uh, he met, he had an audience with the Dalai Lama in India in the offseason, and he spent 90 minutes with the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama basically told him, hey, stop and smell the roses. Uh, you know, settle down, you, you know, you're enjoy life, enjoy what you do. And I really found that day, Aaron Rodgers had the patience of a saint. And, and, and the day I saw him practice in Green Bay, he was, he was, uh, he was really enjoying the moment. Um, I think he realizes he's entering the hundredth year of the Green Bay Packers franchise. He is the, uh, you know, the flagship person for one of the NFL's flagship franchises. And I think he is smelling the roses these days and really appreciating his lot in life. Finally, Kirk Cousins in Minnesota. Uh, It's interesting. I find Kirk Cousins to be truly one of the nicest people I've ever been around covering the NFL. Uh, I was on, uh, I was writing about the NFL's Europe uh, plans um, a year and a half ago, and I went over to England when um, uh, when Kirk Cousins and four other players were taking a tour throughout England, and and I was on a train with him from London to Liverpool. He and his wife, and just one of the most pleasant, intelligent guys uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting, covering the NFL for the last thirty four years. Um, and so I, I think it was a good signing by the Minnesota Vikings without any question. I'd be a little bit worried uh, that uh, at the time, I think that that at least right now, Kirk Cousins hasn't proven that he can take a team deep into the playoffs. Uh, he's had a couple of big late season games with Washington, one a couple of years ago against the Giants where... You know, the Giants were down in the dumps. If Washington wins, they make the playoffs. Uh, and Cousins does not play well. Those are the kind of things, you know, like David Price pitching in October and not pitching well. Until you actually do it, everybody's going to say, can he do it? Uh, and I saw the Vikings in the preseason against Seattle last week, and Cousins did not play particularly well in that game. And I just found myself thinking, you know, I really hope for his sake you know, he's not thinking about all this pressure on him because he really didn't have a whole lot of pressure. He was the, the quarterback picked after Robert Griffin III in Washington. So, um, you know, I, I'm just hoping for his sake that he will, uh, uh, you know, he'll be able to find uh, under offensive coordinator John DeFilippo, who comes from Philadelphia and who's very, very good. I just hope he's able to find sort of the right balance of when to take chances and when to take checkdowns. That is a very, very talented offense, a more talented offense, especially with Dalvin Cook coming back at running back this year than he ever had in Washington. So 
I mean, I'm not making any value judgments yet at all because the preseason is a dumb time to make value judgments. But I will say that Cousins is going to have to play better um, than he's played uh, in the preseason, uh, and I think he's got a very good chance to. I just simply haven't seen it yet. Football is about to make its long-anticipated return to living rooms all across America. That means bragging rights and huge cash prizes are up for grabs at DraftKings.com, the leader in one-week fantasy sports. With one-week fantasy at DraftKings, you choose when to play. You draft a new team every week with no season-long commitment. At DraftKings, you are the GM. You choose your players. You stay under the salary cap. You see how your team stacks up against the competition. No matter what your skill level is, there's a contest waiting for you at DraftKings. So if you've been thinking about trying one-week fantasy football, now is the time to play. Because nothing makes Football Sunday more exciting than when you have a DraftKings lineup on the line. To celebrate Week 1, DraftKings is hosting a free team pick'em promo. Download the app or go to DraftKings.com now and use this code, PeterKing. That's P-E-T-E-R-K-I-N-G. All one word. All you have to do is pick at least half of the winning teams correctly and you'll win a share of a million bucks. Use that code, PeterKing, only at DraftKings. The game inside the game. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Pick'em for details. And now my conversation with Joe Horrigan, the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, after a meeting we had last week in Canton, Ohio. Back on the Peter King podcast, I'm in Canton, Ohio at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I've just finished a meeting as a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, Contributors Selection Committee. Uh, We've just finished a meeting where uh, Pat Bolin and Gil Brandt have been selected as the contributors finalists for the 2019 class. They'll be voted on on February 2, 2019, the day before the Super Bowl in Atlanta. If they get 80% of the vote from a committee of 48, Uh, then they will be members of the Hall of Fame class of 2019. Uh, But I'm happy to be joined here in Canton uh, today by Joe Horrigan, um, who I would consider to be, um, you know, along with Steve Sable, uh, the biggest keeper of the flame uh, uh, of the National Football League. And now that Steve Sable obviously is not with us anymore, I consider uh, Joe Horrigan to be uh, to be that guy. I always call on Joe for uh, for help on football history. Uh, he's always got a good conscience about things. He's the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, um, kind of the unofficial official archivist of all things pro football at the Hall of Fame in Canton. So anyway, Joe, I've given you. 
uh, too long of an introduction, <laughs> and I have too much information <laughs> that I want to get from you. So thanks for joining well, me. Well, thanks for the long introduction. Uh, it's usually just the, here's Joe. <laughs> <laughs> here's Joe. Uh, um, I appreciate that. And so, it, we've so had a long meeting, so we're a little punchy. <laughs> yeah, it was five hours and 41 minutes. Uh, the way this works, basically, for those who don't know the process, is that there are five modern era finalists that are selected every year to be voted on uh, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame meeting uh, the day before the Super Bowl, the selection meeting. And they come from a finalist list of uh, 15 uh, uh, former players uh, or, or, or coaches. And so, but this committee, I think, has been so interesting over the last five years. We're reaching the end of the five-year run in which the Hall of Fame established rules that basically said every other year we will advance two contributors to uh, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame finalist list, and we will advance um, one uh, senior committee uh, uh, nominee. And then the next year, it'll be two seniors, one contributor. Mm -hmm. So we've done that for five years now. I guess I'll start, Joe, by just asking you this, the end of this five-year period, mm -hmm. where do you think the hall stands right now on how this is going to go in the future with the contributors list and the senior candidates list? Yeah, it's a great qu question, Peter. And, and while I don't have the definitive answer because the decisions haven't been made, I can say the process will be that internally here, we will look at, you know, did uh, what we did for five years, did it meet our expectations? Did it solve what we uh, argued at the point that we started this, that there was a huge backlog of seniors and a growing backlog of contributors? And contributors were a little different in the sense that it wasn't so much the backlog. It was that we found that if you historically looked at the timeline, the Hall of Fame opened in 1963, and there really hadn't been but one uh, contributor elected since 1968 that had, that had gone head-to-head -head with players on the finalist list. So we knew that the, it wasn't an even playing field. So we wanted to address that. Now, whether we stay with a 2-1, 1-2 formula for that, that'll be the first question. And then it'll actually be the second question. The first question is, did we accomplish our goals? And I think we have. I think it's been effective in the sense of our senior candidates have been elected. So we're, you know, moving along, although we, you know, are getting fewer seniors than we were in the previous system. because It was two years Every year for the seniors, two two nominations. Two nominees, yes, yeah. I should say, yes, and one and no contributor specifically set aside. So to keep the maximum number of of Hall of Famers at eight, we reduced every other year one of the uh, seniors out and put in a contributor as a, as a finalist nominee. So those are the things we have to look at and consider the uh, success or failure of that system. I think when we when the dust settles, we want to get through this system before we're announcing or saying or trying to, you know, we didn't want to influence the selectors as to how things were going, uh, that fear that it might influence somehow, you know, whether or not they went with two, one, or whatever it might be. So as soon as we get through this year, this cycle, we will take it back to our board with a recommendation. And that recommendation will be based upon talking to selectors, talking internally here with the staff that are involved in the selection process, and then taking it to our board with a recommendation. The board ultimately makes policy, and the staff enforces the policy, and selectors vote. And that's, that's where it will end up as it stands now. 
but you know, having just gone through this meeting, and you know, every time I go through a meeting, as I'm sure you, uh, the same way work works with you, Peter, that you know, you walk out of the room, or first you walk in the room, you're saying, "Well, I know, you know, this is the way it's going to go, or this isn't going to be, you know, this guy or that guy," and you walk out saying, "How the heck did we ever come to our conclusions?" Because it was such a tough, tough discussion. It really was a tough meeting, and you know, I applaud. I thought. And just, you know, there's only so much we can say about the meeting because we're, uh, it's sort of a little bit like the College of Cardinals. You're not allowed to say what happens in the room. But so we had two um, veteran NFL people to act as consultants, Carl Peterson, the former president of the the Chiefs, and Bill Polian, uh, the Hall of Fame general manager. And I found their contributions to be exceedingly valuable. And what I like about having... Uh, consultants come in the room is they don't just say, oh, yeah, this guy's great. He belongs in the hall. Mm-hmm. They tell us his warts yes, exactly. and, and the perceived warts. Right. And and I really enjoy that part of it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think in this particular meeting, uh, it, it, was, it was a bit contentious, but I wouldn't say contentious in any way in a negative way. It was just contentious in that Maybe I didn't dis- I didn't agree with everything that everybody said, sure. and you're able to go back and forth, and that's one of the things about our process that I like. You can jump on somebody a little bit, and then you all know it's for the good purpose of trying to get to Absolutely. the right decision. And that's the big thing. There's a couple of things I would add. That point alone, just the reason that we have consultants in there is we only know what we know. And when I say we, I, I'm just kind of speaking for selectors. I, right. as an you know, administer the process, I do not vote. But the point of a selector, of a, a consultant, is to tell us what we don't know or to either tell us what we don't know or enhance what we do know. And it's a peek behind the curtain, particularly in the, in the uh, arena of contributors, because often what contributors have given to the sport has happened behind closed doors. So until somebody opens the curtain, so to speak, I'm using a door and a curtain in the same uh, analogy, but until somebody gives us a peek behind the door or cur- curtain, we may not know the whole story. So that's a very, very valuable things that sometimes consultants can bring. And in this case, this year, we had Bill Polian, who, like Carl, was a you know club president and a general manager. They both were uh, in both their roles. They both worked on league committees, and you know Carl was with USA Football uh, all the way down to the youth level. So, I mean, these were well-rounded, well-informed career NFL people. So they could address every level of of uh, candidate that was on this list this year. You know, from an owner down to to a general manager, and that's not a down, but, you know, right through the list of, of uh, occupations that we looked at. So that was very good. The other thing that we keep in mind is that uh, what they said this year will be as valuable next year when the next, when the next uh, uh, candidates are brought forth in front of the committee, because we don't, we, as you know, Peter, but I'm telling the audience here, we provide our selectors with summary notes from the previous years, so we have a we have a, a, a quantity of, of former consultants and what they had to say about some of the candidates that are repeating each year. So, Joe, let's. I want to talk about this process just a little bit because I think the vast majority of people listening will have no idea how this whole thing works. Um, I, I'll go over sort of the contributors' process uh, because I think it's. Uh, I think a lot of people will wonder how we arrive at the conclusion where we get to Gil Brand and Pat Bolin. In essence, uh, there are nine, there are 48 
uh, Hall of Fame voters. Of those 48, the Hall selects nine to be on to be in the contributors voters pool, and each year, uh, five of those voters are designated, and they meet in Canton to discuss a list of uh, ten semifinalists for the uh, hall for the Hall of Fame uh, class of 2019. In this case, this year, we were going to pick two out of that pool of 10. Uh, some years it's just one, but we were going to pick two this year. And so we go through a long discussion today, five hours and 41 minutes of discussion and debate about the 10 candidates. You give us a, a ballot and we vote by secret ballot, cutting the list from 10 to 5. We vote from secret ballot, cutting the list then from 5 to 3. And then we vote by secret ballot, cutting the list from 3 to 2. And the two top vote-getters then are the nominees. And I wonder, is this process uh, a process that you feel right now is satisfactory are you looking at this process is there anything about this process that you don't particularly like sure and that's a very fair question and first of all i would start by saying that every year we review the process and every year as you know we make tweaks when when appropriate you know we added from just having one senior to having two seniors at one point uh, we took a couple of years five years ago we took the contributor out of the uh, uh, the full body of, of nominees and put them into the subcommittee's control of making that final determination to go back to the full committee then. So we do make changes. Now, that said, as we're doing it right now with this five-year th- uh, rotation of one and two, two and one, uh, you know, we'll discuss it. But am I satisfied? Yeah, I think what I've seen and I think what it has been doing for us is it has bringing up the candidates who are most deserving to be considered. Now, the list, will it grow? It won't grow nearly as fast as players. There's far more players, you know, participating and have participated in the league than what you would call your administrative owners, general managers, uh, scouts, uh, officials, whatever it might be. There are far more players. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that whatever we decide in terms of going forward, that we are keeping that playing field level. And at the same time, making sure that the right candidates are moving forward in terms of the nomination process, but then also making sure that we're not selecting nominees to fill the requirement of having X number. Rather, we're finding, making sure that we're putting the right candidates into the, into the room for discussion. So that will always be the, you know, the, the thing that's foremost in our minds. Now, the process that we have right now, I think, has been working. Uh, it, it may continue this way, or it may be reviewed and looked at and tweaked. I don't really have the answer for that just yet, but rest assured we are looking at it as we do every year. But this commitment we had for five years for what we have now, uh, we, we didn't have to look at because we did commit to try this for five years. Now it's been five years. We'll look at it again and evaluate, see if it's working, see if it needs tweaking, see if it needs total revamping. Joe, in our time remaining, I'll give you the four quick issues that always seem to come up when we talk about the Hall of Fame, one of which is a a more recent one, and that is with Terrell Owens this year not attending the ceremonies at the hall there was some discussion afterwards and some news reports afterwards that the hall might 
consider mm-hmm. going to a uh, wanting to get a commitment from players and who, who, any nominees that they would attend the ceremony. Obviously, if they're alive, mm-hmm. it'd be hard to attend it if they were dead. <laughs> um, but uh, how does that stand? Was there ever anything to that? Yeah, the, the, you know, and this is kind of one of those things where there was a lot of discussion, as everybody knows, when T.O. decided not to. Uh, come to the Hall of Fame. And as we said from the beginning, while we didn't agree with his decision, we respected his right to make that decision. That said, a lot of the Hall of Famers in particular were, were in particular, were upset. And uh, some of the Hall of Famers, we have three Hall of Famers that are on our board of trustees. And in the course of our board of trustees meetings, they came in at, towards the tail end of that meeting as they were leaving the Ray Nitschke meeting to jump into the board meeting and reported that, you know, there's a lot of discussion here. And there was someone, some, I don't even know who the, what the mechanics were or the individuals involved, but brought up the idea, well, you know, we should make them sign something that says they will come. And like we do with every time we hear something from our Hall of Famers or from a selector for that matter, we always say the same thing, that certainly we hear you. We will always consider what we hear and evaluate it. But we also warn there's such a thing as a knee-jerk reaction. And I think that's really what was going on, some knee-jerk reactions. And at the moment, we have no appetite really to make any kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And I, I would simply say that we heard the heard the request for us to consider this and you know we took it under advisement but i don't anticipate much uh, beyond that happening when i heard this originally you know what i thought i thought there've been 318 people elected to the pro football hall of fame in its lifetime in 55 years i mm-hmm. believe or 56 years and one person doesn't come and they're going to create a rule based on one person. It just seemed a little odd to me. So I'm glad to hear you say yeah, that. And, you know, we, you know, Peter, and, and obviously there's so many variables that there'll be people who literally legitimately cannot come someday, I'm sure. Right. You know, they, you know, didn't expect to be elected and they're on a safari in Africa. I don't know. Right. You know, we actually, I can remember we had a reunion, our first time we invited all the Hall of Famers back and that literally happened with Bud Grant. I, I believe it was Bud. You know, he was so upset that he didn't know about it in advance because he was literally on a safari in Africa. <laughs> you know? so, but, it's, but, you know, you could have an illness, you know, a personal illness or someone, someone's family that, you know, they they just cannot leave. So, the, you know, it, there's really no you know, real sentiment to, towards that decision. Joe, how, if anything, has the the rise of interest and the rise of interest, I would say, particularly on social media, mm-hmm. particularly the continual bashing in the head <laughs> of the Hall of Fame, of selectors and everybody for, for whatever guy isn't in the Hall. Sure. How, if anything, has that affected the Hall or affected the process? It hasn't affected the process, but I would tell you this, that, you know, social media can sometimes be unsociable. Uh, but the the thing that I always remind myself and those who take note of, uh, of what they see and read is that it is so much easier to for people to express their disappointment than to take the time to express their happiness. And, uh, you know, I, I know there's a whole lot of fans out there who have been waiting for a very long time to hear the name Johnny Robinson as a finalist for the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, the Kansas City Safety, who was the senior, senior nominee, nominee yeah. this and year. And every year he wasn't the nominee, I would hear from a lot of folks. But I don't think I heard from 
those same folks congratulating me now. <laughs> <laughs> but I did hear from others who have their favorite candidate. And, and, I, and I know that it's an emotional game, and we appreciate the fact that our fans, when I say our fans, football fans, are so ingrained into how, how they feel a part of, of the, the football family that they express themselves, sometimes with wrong language, <laughs> but nonetheless express themselves. So I encourage that. I, I have not, I'm not offended by it. I'm not surprised by it. And I do, I, I handed Jerry Kramer a sack of mail when he came here after he was elected. I said, here, now you answer them. So, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just the, it's the nature of the beast. People have opinions. They're going to express them. Social media gives them that platform. And they're, they're really well-intended because they are saying they support somebody. Um, two more issues. Number one, term limits. Mm-hmm. I'm entering my 27th year doing this job, mm-hmm. and I wonder, why don't you guys tell people who've been here 20 years to Amscray? Well, and, we're thinking about to- making it a 27-year rule, but, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and, and I, Joe, I'm, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm seriously considering this just because it's probably time for somebody to hear another voice, but mm-hmm. have you seriously deci- thought about term limits mm-hmm. and what are the pros and cons of them? Well, here's, I'll, I'll start by saying that, uh, no, we haven't seriously in, in quite a while thought about term limits, uh, although I would be lying to you if I'd say it, it's never been brought up before. It has. It's just the nature of, of, of uh, a selection process of any kind, whether it's a, you know, a political uh, ele- uh, elected officials or whatever. But the, the pros and cons would be this. The, the reason that I like keeping more senior uh, selectors on is they have a broader breadth of, the, of understanding the game and how it has changed and how you cannot compare players from the 50s to players of the two, 2000s uh, and expect to you know, really have a, you know, apples to apples. So there's a real uh, good need for young and old so that the game is you know we're looking at it from the perspective in the eyes of uh, selectors and you know from our last meeting we had one of our younger selectors speak up in a meeting and he said it from his perspective as a younger person and it was enlightening you know because it you know here i am long hair or long haired long in the tooth gray haired it's not long hair i don't have much hair uh, but you know even for me i thought that was really important to hear that so it's good to have younger but i also want to make sure that i have the Paul Zimmermans of the world who have experienced the game for so long that they have a institutional knowledge of the game, the people, the players, and the process. So there is a balance of both. So I don't want to eliminate somebody because he's been a good selector for 10 years and say, well, thank you for being a good selector. Now i got to go find someone that's not nearly as good as you. Why would I want to do that? We have the, you know, you know we have a, a bylaws provision that should a, a member of the media who are selectors no longer be a member of the media, there's a two-year window that we can, don't even necessarily have to use as an extension, but in most cases we, we use it to find that two, in that two-year period a suitable replacement. Or if that selector comes back to work and goes back to work in the media, it starts again. Tell me, finally... Over the years, I've probably heard this more than any single thing when, they, when people ask, why doesn't the Hall do X? Why doesn't the Hall have a voting panel that includes, let's say, all players and all people who formerly were in the league mm-hmm. 
instead of the vast majority of it being members of the media. Yeah, well, right now, all of our members of the, of the, of the panel, or the committee, are members of the media, including we do have two Hall of Famers now that are uh, on the selection committee, but they are also members of the media. And Kenny Loft, or James, James Lawson James and Lofton. Dan Fouts. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there there's the perfect marriage of two very, very knowledgeable players who are Hall of Fame players who uh, obviously are still working in the media as very valuable members of the media. So they fit the definition. But to your question, yeah, the changing dynamics of the world of media has given us cause to pause and look and say, you know, it's not as it used to be. And I said to someone last night um, when we were having dinner that it used to be that every NFL city had at least two newspapers in it. And you had, you know, one guy was a pro this and the other guy was a pro that. And you, you had a good balance of not only news but sports. Well, th- that world has changed. The you know people can cover any game from anywhere at any time. You know, so it's not necessarily that the guy has to be geographical. So that's a consideration. You know, all right, going forward, or when we're talking media, does it mean he has to live in Denver to be a Denver selector? He may live in you know Ashtabula, Ohio, but he's a you know can literally cover the Broncos from from his television set. I mean, he's not going to be as thorough and as complete as the members of the media that we're used to and really appreciate, but the changing dynamics of the world are just changing so fast through the various platforms in which we consume things. So certainly, you know, we may get to a point in time, I don't think we're there yet, where we have to look and say, all right, let's look and find those people who are members of the pro football world at large and start putting them in, in instead of members of the media. The original concept with media was that it was the one single body of similar people who had no bias, that the sense that they were trained professionals to have open minds as journalists. And I still hold that that's what we have. And, you know, there's lots of folks, you know, out there right now that are taking shots at the media in general. And I think they are, you know, wrong-headed in this. But journalists are journalists, and they, if they're good journalists, we're going to seek them out, we're going to find them. And, and when I say journalists, I mean members of the media. Uh, and that's who we want on our, our board. Are there going to be people along the lines that, you know, we just had two great consultants in, in the room today that, uh, you know, are, you won't find two more knowledgeable people in the, in the world of pro football. Will we supplement with them? Certainly there's, you know, we use them now as consultants. So they're valuable tools as they are. It's the voting that we want to probably keep where it is with the members of the media. Joe, we'll end uh, by with this. I always... Uh, we always see how excited uh, guys are when they get into the Pro mm. Football Hall of Fame. And I thought this year one of the really interesting stories was Jerry Kramer getting in after a thousand years <laughs> and coming here. And the thing I found interesting about Jerry Kramer is apparently he doesn't have a bitter bone in his body, you know, because everything I saw, I, I, I wasn't at the ceremonies this year, but everything I saw this year, Jerry Kramer's the happiest guy in the park. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about the Jerry Kramer experience this year at the Pro Football Hall well, of Fame. Well, Jerry, as I joked earlier, you know, Jerry and I have had a, uh, a relationship in the sense that I, I told him, I said, when and if he finally gets elected to the Hall of Fame, he's going to put some postal worker out of work because <laughs> every single citizen of the state of Wisconsin has written me a letter and has, you know, kind of given me new names, if you will. Uh, and, and questioning my sanity and everything else, my 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 
parental uh, existence. Uh, why isn't Jerry Kramer in the Hall of Fame? You, you know, da, da, da. You know so uh, I couldn't wait for Jerry to get elected. I'm getting tired of this. I didn't think literally came in bales of mail, campaign, you know, cards where they'd all say, and I would actually get some that spell, misspell Kramer, so I would always discount those. Like, you don't even know who the guy is, for goodness sake. But, you you know, it's part of passage in the state of Wisconsin. You had to send a letter to the Hall of Fame and say, you know, Joe, you're an idiot, and I don't vote. But in any case, he was as excited as I was, but his, his excitement was really... It's refreshing because I know, you know, 45 years is a long time to wait. And I'm sure, and he admitted, he says a couple of times, he just, you know, thought it wasn't going to happen, move on, life, life goes on. Uh, and he said, let it roll off the back, you know. And, and, yeah, he said it, but he never really meant it. I mean, he, he probably did harbor some really, you know, hard feelings because, you know, many of his teammates were in the hall and they kept telling him he should be in. And uh, when it finally happened, and he insists this is true, and I've heard it probably from every single senior candidate who then gets elected, it was worth the wait. And once you're in the Hall of Fame, and Jerry Kramer comes to the Hall of Fame next year and he goes to the Ray Nitschke Luncheon, which is just the Hall of Famers getting together, they're not going in the room and sitting at tables. This table is for guys who were elected 45 years ago, or for, after 45 years of their career, yeah. or this guy was elected in the first round. That doesn't matter to them anymore. They're all embracing, they're all recognizing each other as the elite of the elite. This isn't the Hall of Very Good. This is the Hall of Fame. And if you get on that list as a nominee, for goodness sake, that means you have done better than 99% of the players in the league before you. So, you know, I think he fully understands it and he understands it better now that he's in it always helps. But that's that's the reaction he had all week. And he, he, he's still smiling. I know he is. I, I thought it was so cool when David Baker knocked on his door and he saw him. And Jerry was just, the look on his face, it almost just made you cry. Yeah. Just looking at the look on his face, he was blissful. Yep. Uh, one of the happiest moments of his life. And I think a lot of times, sometimes I think about, uh, sometimes I think about the fact that there really isn't much of a reward. And I believe me, I'm not playing the violin. There really isn't that much of a reward for being on this committee <laughs> no. because most of the time you only hear what an idiot you are. That's right. But at moments like that, when I see that, even though I was one of the guys over the years that for a long time I didn't vote for Kramer and mm -hmm. I voted for him this year. Um, but but I, I do think that that seeing the joy when people actually get in, uh, it is just, it's some of the happiest things I remember covering pro football, yeah. seeing the joy on the faces, seeing Randy Moss, uh, a tear coming down his face mm -hmm. and realizing that, I mean, he's one of the best 318 people in the history of the biggest sport in the history of America. Yeah, you know, and that's a that is the reward that I get every year, and that's what reinvigorates me for the next year. Is that you? You're looking at the guy without a helmet. He's not wearing shoulder pads. He's not doesn't have his game face on. He's not nervous. He's nervous about his election certainly, but he's not nervous about game. Before, you know, pregame nerves. Or he's humanized, and in, in their hu humanization, they become humble, appreciative, and overjoyed. You know, and they're just they're they're the, they're the example of how you would want somebody to feel every day for the rest of their life yeah. and that just that is rewarding and you you mentioned Randy Moss I you know I I had never met Randy Moss prior to his being nominated 
And if I were to believe everything I had heard about Randy Moss, you know, I, I would have not let him on the grounds, you know, and he couldn't have been more delightful. The guy, the first words out of his mouth, literally the next day when we gather them at the Super Bowl, you know, to give him a little orientation, he's talking about he, how he's going to use his gold jacket to make the lives of handicapped children better. I mean, wow. this is a guy, you know, and, and I, I say this to all the people listening who, who you know, think they know the man, and I don't mean just Randy, I'm talking about all these guys, athletes in general, when we watch them on the field and we see them, you know, jump for joy and you, you think, oh, he's arrogant and all that. These are the most, when they get elected to the Hall of Fame, they get a dose of humility like you've never seen. And, and it's so refreshing to see the human side of these guys. It's, it's, it's real. Joe Horrigan, Executive Director, Pro Football Hall of Fame, and really one of the people of, you know, I've covered the NFL for 34 years, and I just, people should know how good you are at your job. I have so, <laughs> I really, you. I have so much respect for you. I have so much respect for what happens here at the Hall of Fame. It, it's, you know, I've had so many great days here. Uh, and for people who haven't been, you, you just have to come. It is the coolest place. You've just got to walk among the bus. It's just a marvelous thing, and you've just got to see some of the places, some of the some of the memorabilia here. No matter what team you root for, you will absolutely love it. So anyway, Joe, I really appreciate you joining me. Peter, I thank you for having me, and thank you for those kind words. Do you know that 66% of men lose their hair by the time they're 35? The problem is, by the time you notice you're losing your hair, it's too late. Of course, you know that it's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. Have you been checking yourself out in the mirror? Is that hairline slowly starting to move backwards? Any bald spots yet? Look, be honest. Let me ask you. Do you want your hairline to recede, or do you want to do something about it first? Why do guys always turn to weird solutions or do absolutely nothing when they can turn to medicine and science? Well, now there is ForHims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. That's ForHims.com. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. Hims can provide well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. There's no snake oils or crazy solutions, and more importantly, no waiting rooms, no awkward doctor visits. Save hours by going to forhims.com. It's so easy. Answer a few quick questions, and their doctors will review and prescribe products, which are then shipped directly to your door. So, order now. My listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See our website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or to a pharmacy. So, go to forhims.com king. That's F-O-R. H-I-M-S dot com slash king. For hymns.com slash king. Back on the Peter King podcast, and this, of course, is Peter King. And I'm going to finish up now with a few thoughts, non-quarterback thoughts, on my training camp trip tour, 36 days across the United States. 
And as I said leading off the podcast, I really thought that uh, I wanted to sort of empty my mental notebook about what I saw out there and really some of the opinions I have after seeing a bunch of these teams. So um, I went to meet John Gruden, the new coach of the Oakland Raiders, the old and new coach uh, of the Oakland Raiders, 17 years between uh, coaching jobs with Gruden in Oakland. I think I'm right in saying he left when he was 38, and now he's 55. And uh, I went there to see if there was any diminution of verve, spirit, whatever. And although I found him when I watched him practice to be not the yeller, screamer, owner of every minute of practice that I remember about John Gruden, I still found that um, he really, really loves what he's doing. And he's inventing these new drills that I've never seen before. I wrote about this in my Football Morning in America column at NBCSports.com. I wrote about how uh, he practiced. He has one session that might be about 15 to 18 minutes long where the quarterbacks practice without laces on the football. And you say, what in the world is that? But he found when he watched football during his absence, during his nine years away from the game, He found that when he watched the game, he would see quarterbacks taking shotgun snaps and getting heavily rushed and not having the time to find the laces to throw the ball properly. He said, like Ben Roethlisberger does this all the time. Derek Carr did it too. When you get a shotgun snap and you can't put your fingers on the laces, you basically have to hurry up and throw it in whatever shape you get the ball in. Um, And I don't mean shape, but I mean... If you don't have the ability to use the laces, you got to throw the ball anyway. So it was really, really interesting uh, talking to him about a lot of things. But one thing I found myself thinking, we talked about this. I want you to think about this for a second. That uh, John Gruden, when he was a coach in Tampa Bay, gave Kyle Shanahan his first coaching job uh, in the NFL. Kyle Shanahan was 24 years old, came in as an offensive quality control coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, uh, Kyle Shanahan, obviously, is the coach of the San Francisco 49ers, a very good young quarterback in Jimmy Garoppolo, and they will meet this year in midseason, the Oakland Raiders at the San Francisco 49ers. He gave another guy his first job in the NFL, He gave a young kid in 2007 uh, his first job in the NFL, also as an offensive quality control coach, a wide receiver from Miami of Ohio named Sean McVay. And Sean McVay came down to Tampa and basically did a lot of the stuff that Kyle Shanahan had done, I think, three years earlier. And, And now Sean McVay is the new wonderkind coach in the NFL. Uh, Brought the Rams in his rookie year as coach from 32nd in the NFL in offense in 2016 to first in the NFL in offense in 2017. And now, first game of the season, it's going to be Sean McVay at John Gruden, Monday Night Football, the capper to week one of the season. And I just find it so ironic that John Gruden, who was the master, who was the teacher, who brought in these 
wet behind the ears kids. These guys just getting their start in coaching. Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay. And now Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, probably two of the five uh, hot coaches in football right now, maybe two of the three or four, but very popular around the NFL, very well respected early on in their careers. And now it's John Gruden who's going to have to try to catch up uh, to the kids that he helped train to get in this position. Just a fascinating story, in my opinion. Four other quick points. Number one, the Browns really have a good defense. Um, I love Jabril Peppers. He's not getting a lot of attention yet. But I think Jabril, Jabril Peppers in the secondary and sort of being a monster rover back at linebacker and in the secondary is really going to be dangerous for people to account for. And Miles Garrett, he just reminds me so much right now of Von Miller, the player he hopes to emulate. They went to the same school, uh, and Miles Garrett uh, has shown so far in training camp and in preseason games that he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. Um, watching the Browns, I know we say this every year. I don't like them offensively. I think their line is terrible. And we have to remember, they went 0-16 last year and lost their best player. So everybody just say, hey, they're going 7-9, and 6-10 this year. I think that's Gorgonzola. But I do think that they're going to be better. I do think that without any question that they're going to be a competitive defense. I'll be very surprised if they don't hold – eight, nine, ten teams under 20 points in 2018. It was interesting being in camp watching the San Francisco 49ers. Everybody wants to pump the brakes on the 49ers, as do I. But it's hard not to stand on the sidelines in practice. And if you're a 49er fan, it's hard to not get excited, particularly when you watch Jimmy Garoppolo and you watch Kyle Shanahan calling the plays for him, coaching him. Uh, and being sort of the uh, you know the the guy pulling the marionette strings behind him, you know Tony Romo told me a month or so ago that Kyle Shanahan is a genius, and I do not use that term lightly. Um, I think the combination of Shanahan and uh, and Jimmy Garoppolo is going to make this team a contender to win double digits every year that they're together. Now. Let's have a note of caution. The secondary has some bumps, is not great. Um, if Reuben Foster has had concussion issues, is not healthy, playing consistently, their linebacker core is not that good. And they've drafted a lot of guys high uh, on the defensive line, but other than DeForest Buckner, I question whether any of them is going to be a superstar. So they're going to really struggle, I think, holding people down consistently this year but I also think they're going to be able to score a heck of a lot of points. Now, one of the most impressive players I saw on the training camp trip was a punter, a rookie punter from Australia. Uh, And uh, he played college football at the University of Texas. His name is Michael Dixon. He was a fifth-round pick by John Schneider and the Seattle Seahawks. And the game I saw him in Minnesota in Week 3 was the first time I bet in NFL history where a guy has uh, had two 55-plus yard punts that both uh, died inside the five-yard line. They didn't just die. They hit inside the five, and they took a hard right turn. 
And it was the most amazing thing. And he pleaded, uh, uh, you know, basically, oh, well, it was a lucky break after the game with me. And I said, that was not luck. You've practiced that probably 100 times a day since you were a kid. I've read about him. He's an Australian rules football kid, uh, and he just loves kicking the football. So he's going to be very interesting to watch. I don't know whether that qualifies as offensive or defensive rookie of the year, but he's going to be one of those. Um, the Seahawks, by the way, I think are going to be really good. Everybody says, wow, they got all these questions about them. I think they're going to be really good. Um, lastly, this has nothing to do with the NFL, nothing, but I met Mark McGuire on this trip. He's the bench coach for the San Diego Padres. I went down one day, Bill Johnston, the former PR guy of the San Diego Chargers did not go with them when the Chargers moved from San Diego to Los Angeles. So now the Los Angeles Chargers have a new PR staff, mostly new. And Bill Johnston is, uh, is the San Diego Padres, uh, I think he's director of corporate communications, but he's got a PR job with the Padres. And so he invited me down. Uh, I went down with Dom Bonvasudo and his son. Dom is the editor of my column, uh, Football Morning in America. And we went down and we got a tour of the clubhouse and, and everything, spent some time with the general manager, A.J. Preller, and and had a good time. Also got to meet, we were there, they were playing the Diamondbacks. Tori Lavulo, the Diamondbacks manager, and I had a good conversation. I got to meet Nick Ahmed, uh, the shortstop for the Diamondbacks, who I don't even, I don't know if he knew this or whatever, but when I was in high school in Connecticut, Nick Ahmed's mom was a good friend of mine, Janice Serrato. So I got to meet Nick, watch him play, and, uh, uh, God, he's got 16 jacks this year. Pretty good. Anyway, so I met Mark McGuire. Uh, he was just sitting alone watching some uh, tape um, in some uh, side room in near where the Padres uh, clubhouse is. And, you know, normally in a situation like that, what you want to do is basically, hey, good to meet you, uh, uh, you know, pleasantries, all that stuff. But we actually talked for a few minutes. And at the end of it, I just said to him, you know, I really admire how you handled what must have been a hellish situation for you and how you've come out on the other side and you seem to have rebuilt your life and you're just a regular guy in baseball. I said, I just think that's very cool. I don't know if people notice that or whatever, but I admire the way you came out of it. And he goes, thank you. He said, I love the game. I love baseball. It's just a cute moment uh, that sometimes you, you're on a training camp trip tour and unexpected things happen, and it's just kind of fun. But anyway, those are uh, a few thoughts I have about training camp. I'm not sure whether this works or whether you'd rather hear me talk to somebody, but I just thought it would be fun to, um, you know, to basically do something a little bit different on the podcast this week. And I appreciate you bearing with me and listening while I ramble a little bit about NFL training camps. Thanks to my guest, Joe Horrigan, and me, Peter King. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Roger Goodell, and Larry Fitzgerald. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, DraftKings and Hymns. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.